Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, everyone, and welcome to My Millennium Money Professional. My name's Dev Raga. I'm your host. And in this episode, we have a special guest from RASC Group. We have Kate Campbell. In this episode, we'll talk about, obviously, who Kate is. We'll talk about FIRE. We'll talk about savings. We'll talk about career education. And then we'll go on to some of the barriers of personal finance and investment philosophy. Lots and lots of subtopics to discuss. Uh, Kate, are you ready? Uh, Absolutely, Dev. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Let's get started. Now, if you have any specific questions or comments for me, you can direct it via Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget the three main aims of the channel, that is education, empowerment and entertainment. We have Kate Campbell here. Now, Kate, you did mention about calling yourself as an educator, but are you predominantly in the finance space or do you have like another job, like a day job? that you do something completely different? I, at the beginning of the podcast, I used to have a day job in finance that was completely separate to the the podcast because I started podcasting back in 2017. So quite a while ago now, and I, I remember just going down to JB Hi-Fi and grabbing a Blue Yeti microphone. Any, any podcasters might uh, remember that one. But yeah, I just started sharing my knowledge when I had my very first finance job and I don't didn't even know what I was doing, grabbed the microphone, started recording in the spare room what I was learning at the time and using it as a way to connect with really interesting people in the industry. And I was working in financial operations at different companies along the way, but now the podcast and the education piece has become the day job, though I am still a, a part-time student. So it's uh, fun balancing everything, but uh, it's what I really want to do at the moment because I love learning. Right. Am I allowed to ask what you are studying? Yeah. So I'm doing a Juris Doctor, which is a postgrad law degree and uh, classes are run in the evening. So it's great. I can just walk down after work and go and study various topics. But it's just been really fascinating. When I was working in a financial operation, operations role before doing podcast education full time, I realized how complicated financial compliance and policy and regulation was. And I was the person who liked going through the company's product disclosure statements and circling the errors and sending them to the legal counsel. Like I was that person, but I actually enjoyed going through all these documents, but trying to make them simpler for people. And so many of them are complicated. Like you and I, when we're talking about things on the podcast, we'll tell people to read the product disclosure statement. But most people probably won't read it, but if they do read it, it won't make much sense. And so I wanted to know, how can we make these things simpler? So I decided to study law to actually try and work out why did it get so complicated? And maybe in the future, is there anything that I can do to help simplify some of these very much jargon-filled documents. So undergraduate law, I think, is five years. Is postgraduate law, is it four years? or You can do it full-time in three years, the Juris Doctor. So I have some people I know that are, are doing it in three years, but I'm 
doing it very slowly with about two units at a time. So it's going to take me about five years in total. Right. Okay. And is your plan to sort of stick around that sort of financial world once you finish your uh, law degree or are you going to branch out doing something else, you know, subspecialized within the legal field? Every subject I study during the Juris Doctor, I go, oh, that is such a fascinating area. I'd love to learn more about that. So I'm only just over halfway through. So I'm not um, sort of pinning my hopes to any one area. I'm just happy learning as much as possible, but I'd love to keep working in finance and maybe consumer advocacy some way I can bring all these different interests together. But I guess that's what your 20s is for, learning lots of different skill sets and figuring out how you can bring all those different interests together maybe in your 30s and onwards. Right, okay. Now, I think so, uh, coming back to this concept of FIRE, for example, right? So, I mean, you, you said you're in your 20s, so you are, are you Gen Z then, technically? Is that right? Oh, I don't know. I'm about mid-20s, so. Mid-20s, okay. An investor that's focusing on financial independence earlier in life, or are you thinking about taking the traditional route of just working till your retirement age? I'm definitely still focused on financial independence. The retire early, I like that that's an option, though I think uh, knowing me, I'm always committing to different projects. So I probably won't retire early, but I just want those choices. When I, I was someone that discovered the idea of FIRE very early on, being a complete finance nerd from about 18 I sort of grasped onto that concept really early, which is kind of strange at the very beginning of your working career to be thinking about working towards early retirement. So I just completely went down that rabbit hole, like probably many of your listeners have, looking at every book and resource on the web about that idea of financial independence and being able to retire early. And I set pretty strong 20-year goals on how I was going to reach that point. But I think as the years have gone on and I've been studying and doing lots of different things, I've just focused more on the financial independence bit. So I'm making sure my plan's in place so I can achieve that in the back end because I like the idea of having control and choices and freedom that having having money does bring more of those things into my life and into people that work towards that goal's lives. But I'm yeah less focused on the retire early part because I've also come to realise that what you're doing now with your time is also a very important piece of the puzzle. And I don't want to sacrifice everything over the next 20 years just so I can retire at 40 if it means I don't get to have all those memories and experiences with friends and family along the way. So I've probably slowed down a little bit. So I did go on a trip overseas to Europe in January. And so that that set me back a little bit, but I had a lot of memories and experiences there that maybe I wouldn't be able to have later on in the path. So it's kind of balancing living in the present. We've also putting the steps in so you're financially secure in the future. Right. Yeah. Same with me. I mean, I'm sort of into financial independence, but I can't see myself completely retiring early because I'd go mad, to be honest, just not doing anything. But that's why I don't really like the RE component of it. I just don't think it's a nice... um like it's a, well, it's a nice acronym, but um, I think a lot of people that I speak to are really into financial independence, but they do not want to let go of what they do in terms of their career or in terms of the purpose. So does your sort of spark in finance and money and, and investing, does that sort of stem from your background, your childhood? Or I mean, how, what, what, why did you end up being a complete nerd at the age of 18 when it comes to money, which is highly unusual? because, you know, most 18-year-olds don't really, you know, read books about money. So where's that sort of coming from in your life? 
Yeah, it's definitely from my family. Although they didn't, they weren't teaching me about investing and things like that before 18, money wasn't a taboo topic. And I think that is a very important thread that has come through in my life now. The more I think about it, they were having conversations about money maybe just in the living room. I wasn't involved, but those conversations were happening. So it wasn't seen as something you don't talk about. So I always thought money was, it was fine to talk about saving and how much I spent and what I was earning. I didn't think anything of it. And it wasn't until I started working full time. Um, I actually started working full time at 17. So that's kind of how I got interested in investing earlier on because I actually had a little bit of money uh, for the first time because before 18, I was just spending everything I was earning from part-time jobs. But I think it's that aspect of having that conversation about money being okay. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't get to experience that throughout their childhood. And we don't talk about it in high school. And so we get out into the big wide world, university, first jobs and things. And suddenly money is an issue and we have to start talking about it. And we don't really know how. And it's very hard to start that conversation with friends and family. So, I mean, that's one of the things I do with the podcast, because I realized that my friends needed to know this stuff. And um, maybe they didn't want to talk about it with me for the first time because it's a very sensitive topic and a lot of people have a lot of feelings about conversations about money and shame and guilt and the idea that they should know more or they're not smart enough to deal with it. And so having things like podcasts and extra resources online is a great place that people can start learning about it without having to have those conversations. And then when they feel ready, they can start having money conversations as well. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah, like I don't know why it's such a big deal in Australia, especially about talking about money. It's such a big deal. Like people just don't like talking about it. Whereas, like our North American colleagues, you know, it's all over the news every single day. And in the subcontinent, in Southeast Asia, in Asian cultures, it's not really that much of a big deal to talk about money. It's almost ingrained culturally. But in Australia, it's 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 a big deal. Um, certainly, in our family, we we don't we don't talk about you know, money all the time. But I mean, my family know and my children know, especially about, you know, kind of where particularly the older one knows where the money's going and what investments we have, you know, without knowing all the specifics, because I think it's really important because kids are passive learners. Do you have a FI number as such? Because that gets thrown around a lot, you know, you got to achieve, you know, $2 million in income producing assets. Are you sort of thinking about financial independence from an FI number perspective? Look, at 18, I was like, oh, I want a million dollars. That's going to be great. And uh, I think I've changed my perspective since then. And now I'm thinking, well, what kind of income do I want to supplement my lifestyle? So I'm going, well, what am I actually wanting to spend each year? What are my lifestyle goals? One of my goals, I really want to buy a piece of land that I can regenerate with a forest. And so these are just sort of weird things that don't really fit into having just one number. And so I'm much more thinking about it, like what are my short, medium and long-term goals? What do I want my portfolio to look like so it can supplement my income or potentially I want to work three days a week. So how can I create an income stream from my portfolio, my investments to go alongside that to give me more flexibility and options? So I'm less focused on that number. And I think the net worth number can can be a bit unhelpful at times because it doesn't really look at what your inputs are. And with the market going up and down, people can get really disheartened if they they reach a $10,000 portfolio, maybe that's their goal for the year, and then the market falls and suddenly that's $8,000. 
Did they still achieve their goal if they had invested every month like they wanted to just because the market had fallen in value? So I think I'm much more focused at like, what am I investing? What am I saving? How am I spending my money on a monthly and an annual basis? And how does that align with my goals rather than going, okay, I just just want a million dollars and then I'll be fine because a lot of us put a number and then we realize, oh, that's not enough or we'd still need more. And so you can just get stuck in this endless cycle. Oh, I need two million. I need five million now. So I think at this point, I'm just going, well, what are my goals at the moment? And my goals keep changing and I'm sure they will keep changing. And how can I focus on getting those inputs right at the moment? Right. And and in terms of your savings rate, so I sort of talk about minimum 20% of after-tax money, you know, that's your pay yourself money, which is technically your savings rate. I sort of started off in my younger days up to 50, 70%. Do you sort of have a figure in mind that you would recommend your listeners or our listeners in this channel? Do you have like a minimum sort of savings rate? that you're aiming for? Yeah, it's interesting. We don't really talk. I haven't spoken about savings rate that often. I mean, at the moment, I've this past 12 months has been a lot of spending. So a lot less saving, a lot more spending in my life. But I think it's just important to focus on how can I increase that gap between what I'm earning and what I'm spending, because I want to have more left over at the end of the month. And then I'm focusing on how can I work towards my goals. So every year I set different short-term goals, different medium. The long-term goal of financial independence and looking after my super has kind of remained consistent over the last few years. So I'm working on how can I make sure I increase my income enough and not increase my spending too much so I can meet my savings goals. But I mean, even recently with like my home loan going up and different, like I've been spending money because I bought a bought a place last year. So I've had to buy some furniture and things. I've had to readjust my expectations of what I can save reasonably without beating myself up. So it definitely has dropped, but um, I think it's just something you have to be flexible with. I don't, I wouldn't prescribe a set number. Sure. Yeah. And fundamentally get into the habit of saving something, hopefully, yeah. and then, um, and then build on that to whatever you can reasonably achieve. Um, yeah, and a lot of people might only be able, if you're only able to save $50 or $100 this month, sometimes you can get into that mindset of like, what's the point? Because I'm never going to get ahead. If I can only save $100 this month, then nothing's ever going to change for me. But it's important to think about it in terms of building a habit because even if you can't save a substantial amount right now, like putting that money aside into a savings account for future you is starting to build a habit and a different mindset that you're putting money away to look after future you. And even if it's only a small amount right now, down the track when you increase your income or your life circumstances change or you maybe get a tax refund, you can put more money aside into that future you bucket. So I I like to say that there's still a point, even if it's only $5, that you want to keep that habit going. You want to keep that mindset that I can put money aside for future me. I can be an investor as well. I agree. Yeah. And and certainly, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a doctor and I work in healthcare space and I would never say to a patient, you need to exercise 30 minutes a day for five days of the week because that's what patients kind of, they, get, they, they come in, they're like, you know, I want to lose weight. No, I want to do this. I want to do that. I'm like, well, you know what? Just start with maybe five minutes a day because it's more the behavior and eventually that'll compound and that'll build up over time to 20, 30, 40 minutes a day, hopefully. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people can get turned off with 
personal finance and investing because they start reading articles that's saying, oh, you need to invest $2,000 a month and you need to do this and you need to do that. And suddenly it sounds like a whole bunch of rules and restrictions in your life. And um, people can just read one or two things and get completely put off the idea of even trying to take control of their finances. But if it's more starting small and going, okay, like when I wanted to start running, my only rule to myself was Every day I put on my runners and left the front door. Didn't matter how far I went or what I did there. If I just turned around, I just had to leave the house. And so thinking of how can I break down what I want to do with my finances into the most smallest portion possible. And it's just, okay, this month I need to save minimum $1. You'll probably want to save more than $1, but just setting those really small non-negotiables that it would be hard not to be able to reach for yourself. And I think just being really kind, especially at the beginning of your personal finance journey, when things can seem really overwhelming and very filled of jargon, and it can feel like everyone's got it sorted out except you, just going, well, what is the smallest thing I can do this month to put myself in a better position than I was last month? Yeah, well said. I totally agree. Circling back to career and education, so you currently do sort of work mainly at Rask Finance because I think your bio is, I think you used to work for InvestSmart. I think that was a while ago. And how did you come across Rask? What was the pathway that led, led you to what you do at the moment with Rask? Yeah, well, my co-host Owen, Owen Rask, who actually owns the company and started everything, we actually met on Twitter, I think in at the start of 2018. So, I mean, something good came out of Twitter, I guess. Um, and we, I think we just met and just started chatting because he, I was running my own little podcast at the time called How To Money and he was running his one podcast, The Investors Podcast. And we became sort of friends, met up and became friends in real life. And then at the end of 2018, he asked me if I wanted to start a finance podcast with him because we we knew there was an opportunity there. We both loved talking about personal finance. We loved talking about helping people getting started with investing, taking control of super. And it kind of just snowballed from there. We were just going to start with 10 episodes, just release that, see how it went. We did it over the summer holidays, I remember, in January of 2019. And for some reason, it kind of worked. We got on really well together and we loved having these conversations offline. So we thought may as well structure them a little bit more and put them put them on the internet. It was probably a less scary place back then to just share your thoughts online. And it's just kind of snowballed from there. I was working uh, full-time for InvestSmart up until uh, around when COVID started in 2020. And so we would just uh, do it in the evenings at his office in Hawthorne and it was just a great way to share this conversation with more people and start to have interaction with a community of other people who really wanted to talk personal finance and investing with people but didn't quite know who to talk to in their own life. And so it was great to have, I mean, I think it was at the start of 2020, we had our very first event for the finance podcast. And it was amazing to actually meet these people that we had been talking to in a one-way conversation for the past 12 months. Right. Okay. So that's interesting. And so I, I was going to ask you about how-to money. So do you still run that as well? Because uh, I think there's a website, there's a blog, etc. Or is that sort of put on hold at the moment? Uh, it's. A, I've said it's on hiatus at the moment. It's been on hiatus for about the last 12 months. That was, it was what I started. I was working at a, an invoice finance startup 
which was my very first finance job, and that was before InvestSmart. And I, I think this was this was 2017, around sort of August. And I thought, how do I share the information I'm learning? Because it feels like everyone should know what superannuation is. I was that kind of person. And not everyone actually wanted to talk to me about superannuation. So I, mm. I started talking to the internet instead. And I, I'm not sure what inspired me to start a podcast back in 2017. I Most people weren't listening to podcasts back then. It was still a very new medium of listening to content. And so for some reason, I just decided to start it. I've been very much someone that just jumps in before they have all their ducks in the in a row. So gave that a go and it, it seemed to work for people. I never really knew who I was talking to. I kind of ran it. It wasn't anonymous, but no one ever saw my face. So even today, a few people were like, oh, you're the Kate that did How To Money. I didn't even connect that the finance podcast Kate and the How To Money Kate were the same person. Um, but I kept doing that for quite a few years while I was working at different companies because I realized interviewing was a thing and you could actually use this opportunity to speak to CEOs and senior people at different finance companies in Australia. And as a young person at the start of their career, not really knowing, like wanting to work in finance, but not really knowing which direction to go in getting to speak to experts through this medium because they gained something from it because they got to speak to a wider audience. And I was able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, with people that probably wouldn't have had time for, for me any other way. And so I really enjoyed just running the podcast and talking to people there. And uh, at the mo moment, How To Money's on hiatus. I can't quite say goodbye to it because it was like my original baby, but at the moment, I'm not working directly on it. Do you do much on YouTube? Because that seems to be, you know, a lot of educational material. I mean, certainly I I subscribe to a lot of YouTube channels about money and education, etc. Um, do you do a lot of that as well? Or is it mainly sort of podcasting arms through Rask? Uh, I don't personally, I've never personally posted a YouTube video. We do record some of the, the podcasts we do in video format because... I mean, I was very hesitant to have my face recorded and put online, but it did seem like our community were telling us that being able to connect with the people talking about money actually brought it to life a lot more because, that yeah, they got to hear us, but if they got to see our faces and see how we were experiencing these conversations, it added a lot more depth to things, which I'd never really considered that. I just was like, I don't want my face on the internet. But so now we have some videos and podcasts on our YouTube channel. And we do have quite a lot of videos within our courses on RASC education. So we have a lot of free personal finance courses that help people get started uh, with investing, with budgeting, sorting out their super. And so I'm in some of those videos, but I haven't created any sort of YouTube specific videos before that would be a whole whole new ball game that I uh, I'm I don't know if I'm ready for. <laughs> yeah, so I mean I'm I'm an anonymous podcaster and I think um, there's something unnerving about having a YouTube channel and sort of that lack of privacy that sort of mm. freaks me out to be honest, which is kind of ironic because I love YouTube. Like <laughs> I love I love yeah. watching YouTube. I consume a lot of YouTube stuff. I get almost all of my subscriptions, news channels through YouTube and all of my financial stuff from YouTube. I love listening to interviews on YouTube, but uh, yeah, I've always been hesitant and that's one of the questions that I get asked a lot. Why don't you just start a YouTube channel? Well, yeah, I don't want my face plastered all over. 
all over our social media. I think it's a decision that people have to make. At the end of the day, you want to be comfortable with what you're putting out about your life online. And some people are very comfortable sharing more with other people. And it does benefit. Like when people share personal stories of going through particular experiences, then it allows a whole range of other people that have never felt like they had anyone to connect with or no one's ever spoken about that topic before suddenly they can connect with that as well and makes people feel a lot less alone i think there's a lot of really great parts about the internet even especially like opening up the conversation about money which before podcasts before youtube yes there can be really bad advice and bad content online to do with money but i think there's a lot of really positive benefits as well for people that have never had money conversations with friends and family before suddenly they can see them happening or they can just watch them happening in facebook groups they might not be the greatest conversations but they're actually happening and they're real i agree yeah social media is a great leveler being able to interact with you know people of significant uh, prominence particularly in the finance space We'll just take a quick break. When we come back, we're here with Kate Campbell from RAS Group. We're going to talk about some of the barriers to personal finance, Kate's investment philosophy, her views on superannuation being such a very young person, and uh, a little bit more insight into that coming right up after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, welcome back. You're with Dev Raga at My Millennium Money Professional, and we've got an important guest today, Kate Campbell from RAS Group. We've been chatting away about fire and savings and, you know, Kate's journey in personal finance and how she got into RASC, etc. Now, Kate, in 2023, there's so much information available about personal finance, about investing across various media platforms, whether it be the TV, the YouTube, even Instagram, TikTok, podcasting platforms, Twitter. But people still kind of feel lost or like the number one question that I always get is, where do I start? What do I do? Uh, and I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just a random doctor talking about money. So we have so much more information now than ever before, but yet people seem to be still complaining or lacking that financial literacy. 
Why do you think that's the case and how do we move forward in this space? What we forget is there's a there's quite a big gap between knowing the thing and doing the thing and that's something I see in our community a lot especially for the example of choosing a broker. So we have lots of information on how to compare different brokers, how to choose them. We can't recommend a broker so at the end of the day you have to make that decision but you can learn everything about maybe 20 different brokers, you can do your Excel comparison, you can look at all the different features, you can create an account. But sometimes it feels very hard to actually pick something and make a decision and start using that broker. And so there's a comes a time where you have to go near enough is good enough because otherwise I'm going to spend years trying to make this decision and never actually take that next step on my journey. So I think it's coming to, I need to learn as much as I can, but there has to be a stopping point. And so some solutions to that can include putting a date on it. So I'm giving myself 30 days to compare five different brokers that I've chosen. I'm going to look at the key features. I'm going to create an account. I'm going to give it a go and see which one I feel the most comfortable using. And then I'm by the end of that 30 days, I'm picking one and moving forward with that. And something else we forget with our financial decisions is most of them can be changed and we can, you maybe there'll be a bit of discomfort because switching brokers and moving your holdings across might involve a form, but it's possible to change brokers. And so just because you make a decision now doesn't mean it's fixed in stone. Like you might choose one ASX 200 ETF and then a year later you decide after doing some more research, there's a better option for your portfolio. Yes, mm. you might you might make a whole range of different choices. You might decide to keep what you've got and start investing in the new ETF. You might decide to sell one and just invest in the other, but there are options and you're not locked into your original choice. And even we also forget that all the great investors make a lot of mistakes too. Uh, we speak to many fund managers on the podcast and they, they're making mistakes all the time. There's investments that go wrong for all manner of reasons, sometimes for things in their control and sometimes for factors they could never expected. So I think it's coming back to you need to learn enough that you make a reasonably good decision so you're not investing in something that you know nothing about, that's untested, that really is potentially a company that is not suitable for most investors, but you need to make sure you, you learn enough, but then at some point you have to make that choice and go, okay, I'm going to take that first step. And we, we talk about that being analysis paralysis on the podcast and mm. we can get so stuck overthinking that decision. And especially uh, we have this idea in our head and it's perpetuated through the media and fund managers and finance companies that investing in finance should be hard when in fact it can be really simple. And Something that I think our communities struggle with is accepting that they know enough to get started because they feel like they should keep leveling up next level, next level, next level, where it doesn't actually have to be like that. You can get to a point and go, okay, I know, know enough to build a simple investment plan, build a simple investment portfolio. I know enough to take that step and get started and I don't have to keep leveling up to the next point. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's just, oh, there's so much choice out there and when I went to the United States um, a while ago, I mean, their shopping center, you know, you go to the cheese aisle and there's like a million different choices for cheese and it can be quite overwhelming. And 
uh, sometimes I do wonder about having so much information out there. You know, how do you filter through all of this and what's genuine and what's not and what's a product and what isn't? And I almost worry that there's way too much choice. And sometimes you get that sort of paradox of choice where, you know, fundamentally I think choice is good, but is there such a thing as having too much choice and therefore paralyzing people and and sort of they just can't make that decision? Absolutely a thing of having too much choice. People, the more ETFs that are created and listed on the, the stock market, the more options you have to choose from, and then it becomes a lot more complicated to filter through everything. And so it's really coming back to how can I keep things as simple as possible because I want to understand what I'm doing and I want it easy to stay on top of. If you make your portfolio super complicated with different tax strategies and different entities and so many different investments in different places, it becomes a full-time job just trying to stay on top of things. And for most people listening, I'm sure you have an actual full-time job and you have a life and you have a family and you have hobbies. So you want to make sure you build the portfolio that isn't going to detract from your life. You want your portfolio to help you work towards your goals. You don't want it to be sucking up all your time on the weekend. You don't want to be laying awake at night thinking, did I do the right thing with my portfolio? Should I get up and check on it? You want to have that sleep at night factor. And so I'm a big proponent, unless you want investing and finance to become your hobby or your day job, just make things as simple as possible so you can get on with the good stuff in life. Yeah, well said, well said. And that's a good segue into your investment philosophy. Do you sort of mainly passively invest in your own life or do you do a little bit of active investing and have a core and satellite portfolio? What's your style? Yeah, it has evolved over the years. The very first thing I did when I was 18 was open a brokerage account and start buying and selling random companies that I knew nothing about. And that... I didn't make any money. I didn't really lose any money. I kind of broke even, but it was a bit of an annoyance at tax time because it was a lot of transactions. But it's definitely evolved since then. And I'm mostly invested in long-term passive investments, a few long-term international managed funds. And I do have a small satellite part of my portfolio that maybe 10% of it is in active investments in individual companies. And that's more of a a curiosity thing because I, I love learning about new things and I wouldn't say the satellite part, part, part of my portfolio is outperforming the core. The, the core is doing quite well and the satellite is uh, struggling a little bit, especially US tech companies. But it does keep me interested and it stops me doing anything silly with the core portfolio. So I think there's a lot to be said with that core, maybe 80 to 90% of your portfolio is a really solid long-term foundation, whatever that looks like for you. And giving yourself a little bit of wiggle room around the outside, maybe with just 1% to 10% of your portfolio's net worth that you can invest in an individual company or a, a small business, or if you want to invest in a crowdfunding thing, giving yourself some wiggle room, some breathing space to do that without impacting your overall portfolio because we all get tempted by different things. And so doing it responsibly, I think, is a really healthy way to approach that. In terms of the rest of my portfolio, I have changed my probably my emergency fund approach. I used to be have a much smaller emergency fund, I'd say probably around three months, but now I sort of differ somewhere between six to 12 months just because I really like having that It's not just the emergency fund, it's more that the cash give me choices and options and I'm much more comfortable taking on 
a very long-term investment horizon knowing I've got a much more secure safety blanket, um, especially to cover mortgage repayments and things like that. So we usually say to our community three to six months of living expenses, put in a high interest savings account, which right now there's a lot of those going around, but I like to have a little bit more cash just to feel comfortable that if anything happens to friends and family, I can take time off to be there with them. I can like I'm not changing jobs, but if I needed to change jobs or anything like that, I've got that flexibility there. If I needed to have a holiday that I hadn't really planned out, I've got that money there as well. And the rest of it is just keeping things diversified. So I'm not putting all my money into one single investment, one single country, one single type of asset and having a plan written down, investing on a monthly or a quarterly basis where appropriate for different different goals and even just having that plan and I'd, I check in sort of what's coming in and out of my bank account on a monthly basis just to get a overall look at what's going on. I would say I'd update my net worth on a quarterly basis. I suggest not doing that too often because otherwise you can become very tied to that number on the spreadsheet and whether it's going up or down and that's not often a reflection of you, it's just a reflection of what's happening in the market and the global economy and then I probably set my investment goals at the start of the year and then check in at the middle of the year to say should I increase them, decrease them, have my priorities in life change. So that's kind of like the overall investment philosophy I've got going on at the moment. Right. And and do you sort of worry too much about, you know, in 2023, there's all this talk about recession and obviously you've, you've gone through the COVID crisis um, in terms of your investments. Do you sort of change your investing philosophy to suit the market dynamics and the economic factors? Or do you sort of like, nah, I'm going to ignore all that. I'm just going to go with what I've got on paper. I really just focus on what I can control and I, I can't control what the economy's doing. I can't control if we do have a recession or if we don't. I mean, we did a, a podcast recently on recession proofing your finances and that's more of just overall concepts on how do you prepare your finances and your investment portfolio for any challenges that you might face in your life. We were we're all gonna face our own recession-like situations. Maybe we've lost a job, maybe we're sick, maybe we're looking after a family member, we're out of work, things like that. And so I just think about what can I do to make sure my, maybe my financial moat is as fortified as possible. So having things like multiple sources of income, if that's possible, maybe picking up some extra shifts if you can, if a side hustle might be relevant to you for a few months so you can add some more cash to your emergency fund. It's putting a few extra months of mortgage repayments aside. It's thinking about how I can spend less if I need to. Are there any subscriptions I'm not using so I can just free up a bit more breathing room in my budget? Uh, Potentially I can renegotiate some of those bills or my mortgage interest rate. And investing in my career, that's another important way to fortify your own financial future and making sure you've diversified your your skills and abilities that you can get another job if anything happens and you can hopefully down the track increase your income. So I'm much more focused on what can I do to protect my financial future as well as what am I doing right now. And so I'm probably less less focused on whether a recession's going to hit this year and I'm more focused on what is within my control that I can do to look after my finances and be prepared for challenges that will come my way. And what about alternative investments like crypto? Do you do much of that? I mean, back sort of 2018, 2019, I 
had a look at crypto just because I wanted to fully understand what was happening there. I don't personally invest in it as as an asset class. I I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people about it, but it's probably not something I need as part of my plan. I'm happy to have the average returns and spend most of my time thinking about the rest of my life. I don't want any roller coaster investments because I think that would take away from my quality of life. I just want to focus on living really. And I think it's also interesting, the longer I've been investing and talking about finance, the less I actually check in with my own finances because I'm quite comfortable that I've made a plan that's happening in the background. And I really want to spend the rest of my time focusing on having a life and doing all of that fun stuff. So I'm quite happy to skip any high risk, high return asset classes and just focus on long-term passive investments, a little bit of active, but mostly things that I can set and forget in the background. Yeah, well said. I mean, basically, keep it simple, diversify, automate where possible and don't meddle with it really, isn't it? Automation's a big one and that's been fantastic for my own finances, just setting up automatic savings. If I have a savings goal where I want $1,200 by Christmas, when I get paid, $100 is automatically transferred into my Christmas account, my investments... Not all of them are automated, but some of them, the direct debits happen automatically every month. And that it's great to have that happening in the background because even when life gets busy, life gets stressful, your finances are taken care of. And that's a great feeling to have. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of automation when it comes to savings and investing. But what I don't like automation in um, is paying my bills. Mm-hmm. I actually manually pay my bills because, because it makes me think about what the expenses are. And it makes me think about, I don't do any direct debits for any of my bills because I don't know, it sounds crazy, but I want to feel the pain of money leaving my credit card. (laughs) And and I'm like, and sometimes I'd go, you know, why am I paying this insurance company this much money? I'm just going to ring them up and haggle them for a better deal. And, and I do that every year. Yeah, at least at least once a year. Some of those big bills, you do have the opportunity if you can pay annually in advance. You can usually call them and get quite a decent discount. I mean, I'm I'm on my water bill. I don't have any opportunity to negotiate. It's just mm. that is the water provider for your local area. But it's it is so things like that. I I automate and so that just direct debits out of my offset account. But yeah, big fan of renegotiating things that you do have some control over as well. Now, being a very young person and superannuation, that's been in the media and people talk about it a lot and there are huge segment of the population uh, and listener population that are very pro-super and there's also a very sizable population that hate super because they think it's some sort of, you know, waste of time, government scam, I've heard it all. What's your view on super in general and what do you do? Do you sort of maximise it or do you not really focus much on it given that you're looking more for financial independence and super is not really accessible up until your preservation age, which for you is a very long time away? Yes, quite a long time away. So I have probably changed the way I think about it over the last few years and sometimes I go, okay, I'm not adding any extra to super and at the moment I'm adding around $200 as a, a personal contribution per month on top of what I've got from my employer, because that does add up. I mean, I did a quick little calculation over 50 years, $200 extra per month with maybe a, a 7% per average annual return uh, would add around a million dollars extra to my super. I'm not accounting for taxes and things there, but 
small changes do add up. So at the moment, I'm, I've kind of settled on that amount. And I do think super is important, especially for people getting closer to retirement. This is the time when seeing a financial advisor does really pay off to make sure you're in the right strategy, you're able to retire with enough money, or maybe you can use that some other income to complement that. But at the moment, it's a long way off. I'm pretty good at thinking long term, but I'm probably working towards financial independence outside of super. So whatever I've got in super would be just a cherry on top, maybe for a few extra holidays when I'm older. But it is hard to think that far away. And I think that's why so many of us have been disconnected from our superannuation accounts for so long. And the government's trying really hard to actually uh, stop us from ending up with 20 different super accounts, all with fees and insurances. But it is hard to visualise yourself in 40, 50 years' time. It's very hard to even invest for five to 10 years, let alone 40 or 50 years. So I think if you can just make some small changes, even if you're not contributing extra by making sure you don't have too many super funds running around, and you can easily check that by logging into the MyGov ATO account and seeing what super funds are connected to your tax file number, checking if you're in the right investment strategy for you. And a lot of super funds, you can actually call up and chat to them now, making sure you're not in a super high fee super fund, you've got the right insurances for you. So even if just making some small changes, because it is your money, and we often forget that we're so disconnected because we don't have much control over that pot of money, but we do have some choices we can make to make sure that money is working as best as it can for our financial future. Mm, yeah, it's. I mean, I I love super and I do maximise it, but um, yeah, it's pretty hard for someone to be able to imagine the pot of money sort of staying there for that long. And I, I sort of use super as, like you said, a cherry, or a bit of an ice cream, bit of a yeah. dessert. Whereas I've got my staple investments, which is going to be my index fund portfolio and my um, property portfolio, and then basically have superannuation to sort of you know, top it up a little bit. It's, I mean, there's been a lot of lot of media talk about it in recent times about, you know, the extra tax on anyone that has more than 3 million. And and then you've got the average punter out there who's really worried that, um, you know, what if they get to 3 million and they're going to have to pay, oh God, 30% more tax. Well, you know, I sort of, yeah, all, all that sort of is just noise for me. I don't really worry about it. Do, do you worry too much about that sort of stuff or? No, look, I'm, I'm a long way away from three million. So I feel like that would be a something to face if I, if I get to that point. But at the moment, I just, that's another thing. You can't control what the government's going to change with regards to the rules of super, unless maybe you get involved in policy reform. But uh, I just focus on things that I can control. I can control where my super is invested. I can control the fees I'm paying. I can control what insurances I have. And if I do want to make an extra contribution, I can also control that. And also check your employers paying your super because not every employer does. And so you can, um, I would recommend logging onto your super at least once a quarter to make sure those monthly or quarterly employer contributions have been paid. Yeah, that's definitely important. Actually, I've actually spoken to a couple of people in the healthcare space that the superannuation amount is actually shown on their pay slips, but it turns out that money never actually entered into their super account. And I think the ATO kind of keeps tabs on those and they do let people know. Yeah, absolutely important that just because it appears on the payslip doesn't mean that the money actually has gone into the account. So please make sure, yeah, make sure you log in and sort of check. 
Now, I think earlier in the episode, you said you'd bought a house and you're obviously in your 20s. Now, that's a remarkable achievement in today's housing market, particularly in Melbourne, which I think is where you live and work. How the hell did you end up doing that? Because people say that it's unaffordable. I mean, I get worried looking at all the property prices around Melbourne and I'm like, how the hell can people afford to buy property? But clearly, you're an example of someone who's young, who's ambitious and was able to do it. Any insights? Yeah, look, Dev, I'm not putting myself out as the the example for people to follow because I have lived quite an unconventional life. I mean, I was full-time working and saving and investing. Like I was working full-time since 17 and I didn't have many expenses because I was living on base in the Air Force for a while. So there was very intensive saving period for a few years and then I have been saving and investing ever since. So I was actually, and it was a bull run as well. So I was able to sell quite a few of my investments to afford a place. And it was more of an apartment than a house. So I'll just add that as some context. But I think it was, yeah, a lot of hard work. I mean, I was very lucky to be working in finance in relatively high paying industry. I have been saving and investing for a long period of time and I didn't have a life. And for, for quite a few years when I was working and having multiple sources of income and stuff. So I wouldn't really put myself out there as a, an example people could follow because I know people get really pissed off when they read those articles like 20-something-year-old buys house and it's just not very relatable. So, yes, there was a lot of luck, there was hard work, but there was also um, benefits like I did live at home for a little bit of while, I did live uh, on base with no living costs for a little bit, I um, and yeah, I've just been working and studying for a long period of time, so that all kind of compounded into uh, meaning I could get in relatively early into the property market. But Although your, your sort of journey into home ownership is very unique in the sense that, you know, not many people work full-time at the age of 17 and and you've sort of capitalised on that. But, but I guess the fundamental lesson for anyone that's listening is that if you get given an opportunity, try and maximise it as much as you possibly can. And uh, obviously, Kate didn't have much of a life um, during, you know, between the ages of 17 and possibly now. And But at the same time, what I have learnt and what I will probably say from Kate's experience is that she could have done other stuff. She could have, you know, um, gone on multiple holidays and, and, and spent a lot of money, but she didn't. So she had a choice and she basically played the cards right. So uh, it is possible, although it is getting more and more difficult and I am worried for the next generation of home ownership because I think housing security is a really important thing. There's nothing more important than making sure that you and your family have a safe and secure home to live in. So that sort of worries me a little bit, but um, I think it is still possible, but it takes a lot of planning as what Kate has done. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of hard work uh, and it's not easy. So definitely something to aspire to. Now, we're sort of reaching up to the end of the episode, Kate, and I'm sort of, you know, uh, most people know me as, you know, I live a pretty frugal life um, in the sense that, you know, luckily over the years, my income has increased a lot, but my expenses has been relatively the same. My biggest expense at the moment is schooling for my children. What's some of the, what's some of the money wins that you think that 
you do that our listeners can possibly aspire to or utilise? For example, you mentioned about, you know, making sure that you're not paying the loyalty tax with insurance and all that sort of stuff. Is there anything else that you do that you think is quite unique and you want to share with the audience? I'm not sure if I'd say unique, but something that's been saving me a lot of money in the last few months is doing um, like Sunday night meal prep with friends uh, because I haven't really enjoyed cooking and I would just resort to buying lunches a lot of the time because I just didn't like what I cooked. And so I I have some friends that are really into cooking and we'd um, go to one of our houses on a Sunday night and share the the cost of groceries and we'd make a few different meals that would cover lunches and dinners for the rest of the week. So it was a lot uh, a lot cheaper. It was fun and it was a social event that didn't really cost us any extra money because we were spending the money we would need to spend on groceries that week. So that's been saving me a lot of money and it's probably made me a lot healthier over the last few months because I've had a lot less takeout. Um, and even going to the farmer's market, I've been experimenting to see whether groceries are cheaper at the farmer's market or going to my local fruit and grocer. And it really depends. Sometimes there's some great value at the farmer's market with fruit and veggie and you can get everything for one or two dollars. But then there's a lot of boutique stuff. Like if you want fancy meats and fancy milks, uh, a lot more expensive at the farmer's market. But I've also found that the local fruit and veg grocer store that's often near the supermarket sometimes can have some great deals. So it's just been shopping around and experimenting a little bit more and making sure I get fruit and veggie that are in season and not trying to buy the wrong foods at the wrong points in in the year, that saves a lot of money as well. And even cashback websites, when I went overseas in January, a lot of different things I was using like booking.com or Hostel World, you got a lot of opportunities to use cashback websites there. So if you're gonna spend the money anyway, you may as well get some of it back. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, you know money is hard to come by. You work hard for it, might as well think about how you utilize it and how you spend it. And why pay more when you can pay less? I mean, you know, why would you wanna it's akin to throwing money into the bin. So, um, yeah, that's some that's some good insights there. And yeah. so that's kind of all we have time for today. I really appreciate Kate from Raskrip coming on board, sharing her views about money, her journey in terms of financial independence, her career, her education, and congratulations on um, hopefully one day becoming a lawyer. And we, we had a lot of, lot of things to talk about, everything from her investing philosophy to um, her views on superannuation, some of the barriers to personal finance and education and the paradox of choice. So Kate, really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Deb, for having me. All right. Now, if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me on Twitter or on Facebook. And remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or any of the other platforms that you may be using or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms because those reviews really help us spread the message of financial literacy. And until next time, my name is Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Professional. Please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.